0: Morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Jonah chapter one. Jonah chapter one. Technically, I'll basically be bouncing from four to sixteen. We're going to concentrate on a few verses, particularly within that section. But we kind of be drawing from the collect the that collection of verses overall. You know, Jonah is such a fascinating. Story. You have this man, right, who is worshiping God, teaching others about God, who then decides to rebel against God. But God calls him to preach redemption to these enemies, the Ninevites. And because Jonah doesn't have the same heart, Of compassion. For them, as God does, He refuses to go. He runs the other way, right? He runs the other way. He tries to, in a sense, rescue His own life. Then God, in His great glorious mercy hurls a storm at Jonah. And then, through the providence of and sovereignty of throwing lots, he exposes Jonah, all for the sake of rescuing Jonah. And then once God rescues Jonah's heart, then in great humility and Great gratitude, as we'll see going into chapter 2, as you see from Jonah, Jonah begins to live for, now having been rescued, for the rescue of other people. This exchange, this rescue, and for the rescue of these other people, doesn't begin simply with the fish in Nineveh. It begins here in the ship. Listen, this story is is as much about him going to Nineveh as it is about this rescue that happens right here in the boat of his rebellion. This rescue of Jonah's heart. You see, Jonah... Jonah. Sorry, Jonah, if you're in here. Not Jonah. I, I think she might be working. If you're listening to the audio, Jonah. Sorry. You see, Jonah... 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 Jonah. Okay, don't do that again. Jonah. Jonah, hear me, was so caught up in rescuing his own life that he could do nothing else. That's real important for where we're going today. I was reminded this past week, as you heard me even pray earlier today, that you become what you behold. And Jonah beheld his own life supremely. And he could see nor do anything else. So let me ask you a question. Do you live more for your rescue or for the rescue of others? Just think about that for just a few moments. Do you live... Most often motivated out of rescuing your own life or for the rescue of others? Do you live, let me put a little more meat on this question. Do you live more to preserve your life, your way of life? Maybe think of it as your kingdom. Or do you live more for the rescue of others? Now, let me be very careful. I, here's what I want to warn you. Don't confuse doing acts of service for other people as actually living for them. Because your motivation, even in doing acts of service for someone else, could be completely for the saving and rescuing of your own life. So be careful that we don't confuse... That would be, you're just living by legalism then. I mean, if it's just I'm doing acts of service and that means that I'm living rightly, right? Jesus is concerned about the heart. God's concerned about the heart. The Pharisees were concerned about actions. We want to be concerned about the heart in the image of our Savior. So don't confuse doing acts of service or doing things for the benefit of others as actually living for their rescue. You might be even in those good acts be living for the rescue of yourself. Let me give some other examples of this. Maybe you spend most of your energy trying to preserve your life through the pursuit of your ideals, right? Living for your rescue through the pursuit of your ideals. Like like you think life should look a certain way and, and that's where you find your joy. So you do everything you can to secure those. Whatever they may be. Maybe you, let me get a second example, maybe you spend most of your energy trying to preserve your life through the acceptance of other people, or the affirmation of other people, or the approval of other people. That's how you rescue, because that's where it's kind of dangerous here, because you could actually be doing things that are good for those people around you, but you're doing those in order to get their acceptance, which is where you find your joy, and so you're doing these good things for other people, but they're motivated out of the rescue for yourself. What do you think will happen when that person stops approving of you? Obviously, you're going to be crushed, but you also might be like, what to the heck with them? If they're not going to approve me, I'm going to move on to someone else who will. Well, that's not covenant love. That's not living for the rescue of someone else. That's living for your rescue. We must continue. Third example, maybe you spend most of your energy trying to avoid stress at all costs. Anything that feels stressful, you run the opposite direction. Listen, understand that if God is, and His mercy and His rescue is not at the center of your thoughts and your heart, dominating every thought, dominating every decision that you make, your idol will be. Your idol will dominate every thought. It will dominate every decision you make every decision, parenting decision, financial decision, what you watch on TV, how you spend your time, what you say to your kid, everything. will be dominated, will be centered around the acquisition or the acquiring of that idol. from observation, just eyes and ears and such and as we see, I think is a biblical norm, I would even propose that most of the time you will not even realize that you're doing this, that this is dominating, that an idol is dominating what you're doing, until God steps in either through the body, the word, or some other means and wakes you up to it and rescues you. You see, if you live as though God needs help rescuing your own life, you won't live for His plan in rescuing others. Let me, let me define that. It's kind of another way of looking at this, another facet of this is that if each day you're living, doing things like seeking other idols, seeking to be rescued by the acquisition of these other idols or these other things that, that I f- will feel safe and secure in, Right? then I'm not resting. That is mutually exclusive. I cannot do that and rest in the salvation of Jesus Christ at the same time. It's me, in a sense, adding to that. I'm saying this salvation in Christ is not enough. I must have this over here. And if you do that, as we all do, then you will not live for the rescue plan of other people. I'm going to flesh this out as we go you see a life lived trying to save your own life will consume all that you have this is what we got we we think we can play like live for god's kingdom and our kingdom and we can kind of do both but what you don't understand is that when we live for your kingdom when you live for your rescue that will suck all of your energy it will take it all leaving you with nothing left over it is a lie that you could live for both It will use up the entirety of your being, your head, your heart, your hands, all of it. Let me remind you of John 12, verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. Did you hear that? And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus would go on to say many things certainly about laying treasures up in heaven and living for God's kingdom and not our own and living C.S. Lewis said something very similar. He said this, "Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither." Why do we do this? Why do we do this? We've been talking about this idea of this gap in our theology. This gap Between what we say we believe and what we functionally believe. Like what we say we believe and what we do. Formally, our formal theology, if you will, is we believe that God has completely and entirely rescued us out of complete despair and destruction. Right? You can't get any other picture, unless it's worse, (laughs) uh, a a more desperate picture uh, than what we find in Ephesians 2. Right? That we're dead and God rescue like for those of you who are redeemed in this room would would certainly mentally affirm that but functionally though we live as though we were only half dead or people who needed a little bit of help in getting to heaven and then the rest of life is just kind of on us and we kind of kind of you know sprinkle the gospel here and there in our lives instead of clinging to it as if it's our very breath would tend, I would contend that it is, is indeed our very breath. Not even metaphorically speaking. It is our spiritual breath. Today, here's what I want us to see. I want us to see that rescued people rescue people. That rescued people rescue people. That those who, listen to me, Know, see, feel the rescuing work of God will be about the rescuing work of God for others, for the sake of others. I think you'd be amazed at how much silly stuff when it comes right down to it, that we have given ourselves to. How much frivolity there is in our lives. Let's read Jonah 1, through 4-5. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. The seasoned mariners were afraid. And each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. First thing I want you to see is that the world around you is crying out to its own God in the midst of a great big storm. Whether they see it or not, whether they're frantic or not, I was reminded this past week as I was at a conference about schooling our children and teaching our children that, uh, like, if you just look around, if you just step back and just watch, there's such an anxiety all around us. There's such an anxiousness, uh, a hurriedness. Not, I'm not just saying, like, we're rushing, but there's, there's a, there, what's, why are we rushing for? What are we rushing for? It's not just the fact that they're rushing, but what's causing this anxiety? What's causing this anxiousness all around us? It's this pursuit of these other gods in the midst of a great big storm. You see, you know it's bad. It's a bad storm when the seasoned mariners are afraid but what I want to point us to is that people have a need for something outside of themselves. They have a throne room built in their hearts, hardwired into their hearts that only God can sit on. And so everyone looks somewhere else. Each, it says, cry to his own God. Listen, even the atheist sees and has us built in this intrinsic need for something outside of himself or herself. But listen, when the crying was done, we're not there yet in the story, but as you know, when the crying out was done, the storm still raged on. I want to start unpacking this by saying that we cry out to our own gods as well. We all have our own shrine set up in the closet of our hearts that we cry out to as well. Let me give you some questions to ask yourself to think about this. What gods do you cry out to in the little storms of life? Even the big storms, but they'll be the same. Here's some thoughts, some guidance to think about this. Where do you go to for rest and peace? Where do you go? To, what makes you feel at ease? That is one of your gods. I'm not saying the desire for rest and peace is a god. Like, that's a good thing. We're built to desire rest and peace. I'm saying what do you go to for rest and peace? Whatever makes you feel better when life is tough, that is your god. Or maybe we spin it a different way, maybe looking at more of a, 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 a more of a negative way, maybe. that's kind of a negative feeling anyways. But whatever seems to irritate you the most, that might very well be your God. Whatever seems to make you depressed the most, that might be your God. Lastly, whatever seems to consistently make you unrighteously angry, that is your God. Right, the list goes on and on and on. I just wanted to give you some broad questions to help decipher this in your own heart. And listen, here's the deal. At the moment, at the moment that your heart cries out to another god, and it cries out to one of these gods, okay? And we listen, we all do this every day, multiple times every day, Okay? if you're thinking about it rightly and deeply enough, you and I each do this multiple times every day, maybe even a hundred times in one day. Our heart wants to cry out to this other God or this shrine that we have established in our life. And at the moment your heart cries out to another God is the moment that your heart is in desperate need of rescue. Not a day goes by that you don't cry out to another God, and therefore not a day goes by that you, just like Jonah, just like the crew, are in desperate need of God's gracious rescue. You see, let me warn you, at the end of the day, your crying out to your own God may seem like the storm has calmed just a little or for just a time but it will continue to rage on because that God can do nothing about the storm inside your heart. Nothing. You see, because we are convinced often, and so I I want you to connect this dot because this rescue people, rescue people, right? Because we are convinced often, you and I, all of us, just as the world, that these idols are satisfying like functionally, this is where, why, why, would, why would you run back to it? Why would you keep going back to that? Because you think that it can handle it, that it can calm the storm, that it can fix what's going on in your heart. You think that it can do that. So you, you run back to it. So functionally, you keep going there. And if this is happening, when the world is in the storm, you will have nothing to offer them. Nothing. Why? Because your life is offering them the same God crying out that they're doing, and that's not helpful. Listen, the the, kind of the warning for us as a church, for us as people, is this: don't be the silent church in the midst of the storm, don't be the silent church. Church in the midst of the storm. Again, we're gonna unpack this. We're gonna see, okay, how do we how do we get this? But <clears throat> I was reminded this past week that we we don't like discord. We like harmony. We're built that way. But I want you to live for the next 20, 30 minutes with a bit of discord, a bit of disharmony, where you kind of sit in this. Don't be the silent church in the midst of the storm. It goes on in verse 5, the second part of verse 5. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Storms raging, ships threatening to break up, disaster death awaits them. He's asleep in the middle of the boat. Why was Jonah asleep? This is a question I asked myself. Why was he asleep? We touched on this a little bit last week. But to kind of reframe it here with maybe some uh, bigger term is that he was living for his own rescue. Right? I will save my life if I flee from Nineveh. And because he was living for his own rescue, that was the justification for his actions. I can rebel against God because I've got to save my own life. So all of his actions served the purpose of rescuing himself. His very act of being on the ship, hear me, was him crying out to himself as God to rescue himself. He thought that he had it all figured out. He could rescue himself. And you and I are looking at this going, that's absurd. That's crazy, right? I mean, everybody agree? Amen? That's crazy. We do it every day. We're just maybe not on a physical ship in the middle of the ocean with a storm threatening to break the ship up. But indeed, we are on a ship in the middle of the ocean with a storm raging on. And because, listen, because of Jonah, because he was living for his un- own rescue, he was asleep to the rescue plan of God. Listen, listen to this. Jonah was not concerned about the brokenness around him. Not just the brokenness in Nineveh. He's in the storm. He's not worried about the brokenness around him. Listen, he, Jonah wasn't concerned about the brokenness that he would cause in the wake of his leaving. His his deserting God's plan. His leaving and rebelling. He's not concerned about the brokenness that, that that would cause or that it would leave behind. He didn't care. All he cared about was preserving his own life. Listen, Jonah was not concerned, hear this, about the disaster he was causing While he was sleeping. right? Understand, this storm is happening because of Jonah. Because of his rebellion. And he's sleeping. What's that say? He doesn't care that his sin, that his rebellion is going to cause this disaster that might even take the life of these people around me. He doesn't care. Listen, I see Christians do this all the time as well. I see this in my own life. When all we do is care about our own rescue, we will be completely blind to the devastation that it causes those around us. For Jonah... The rescue of his own life by his own means was the secret sin of Jonah's life. I can save myself. I want to save myself. I'm going to save myself. Here's how I'm going to do it. This had seared his conscience, right? It had cauterized his conscience, if you will. Just like Jonah. Listen, Jonah's in the Bible because he's like us, right? We're silent because we're asleep to God's rescuing plan. Like, why, why do we struggle with evangelism? Why do we struggle with sharing the gospel? Because oftentimes we are asleep to God's rescuing plan. Now why? Uh, we, we want to ask the question, why? Why do we sleep? Why are we silent in the middle of the storm? These are multiple reasons. I don't have time to venture into other passages and such, but we sleep because of seared consciences. Like our consciences are seared. They have been cauterized to the brokenness around us. Why? So Now we ask the next question. Well, why are they seared, right? Multiple answers could, could fill in the blank here, but one is probably secret sin. Something secret in our hearts that we, we're holding on to and are and holding on to that instead of giving it to God and letting it be exposed and letting the light shine on it, that us holding on to it, we got to understand it's like you're using all of your energy to hold on to that, that you don't have anything left to give to those around you in the storm. You and I are not inexhaustible in our energy. In our efforts. We are weak. And when we spend it on something other than God's plan, it's going to all be expelled. You will have little to none left. I, I, we should continue, less. But another example, seared conscience. Maybe, maybe it's exposed sin. So maybe the sin has been exposed. But now you're spending all of your time trying to justify that sin. Self justification. So I've got to convince everyone around me and convince myself most importantly that I'm not sinning. Listen, all, all, all that's happening in that process is the searing of your conscience is getting harder and harder and harder. The crust is forming around it And it's getting thicker and thicker. Maybe a third one is that sin that others around you, I'm sorry, your sin that others around you are maybe even unintentionally solidifying and letting those become sins in your life that are searing your conscience. Or maybe, maybe, so we think about searing of conscience, maybe it's because of distractions. Maybe it's because of distractions. Maybe, right, the, this, this pursuing of something else, and when you think about it in terms of like distractions, you're giving all of your time to these distractions instead of to God's plan, which right, these would be sinful, but maybe it's because of distractions that you're asleep to God's rescuing plan. Let me give you a couple examples. Maybe you're consumed by less important things in life in general, like, just think about how much frivolous things that we give our attention to, that, that we behold, that we grab a hold of, that we try to give time and energy. And Maybe in parenting, you're more distracted by preferences in your child's life that you don't look to the evil heart that's behind it. Like an example in my life would be I like a quiet house. I do, I have four boys. Now, I can live for the preference of them just learning to be quiet, right? Now, and then you would walk into my house, you go, wow, he's such a good parent. His kids are quiet. They're orderly, and everything is nice and quiet in here. And you would think, that'd be fantastic. It, 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 for me, it would be fantastic. But I could do that and totally disregard the heart behind it. I'm living for the preference. I, I'm distracted by something not as important, right? My quietness, my enjoyment of quietness in my home is not as important as the evil heart behind them. Maybe when we think about like church and life and ministry, okay, hang with me for a second here. When it comes to church and ministry and mission, we can be easily distracted by very unimportant things. Listen, it's easy when it comes to church to be distracted by preference. That you miss all the good that's going on around you. It's easy. And that is one of the prime places that Satan does it. Something that's just not important. Important. Oh, you say, well, it's important to me. It's part of my convictions. Well, maybe your convictions are ordered wrongly. Ever thought about that? I mean, that's really what I'm contending here, is that we can be distracted by the wrong ordering of convictions or the wrong ordering of desires. And what happens when that, when that happens, that happens particularly in the church, you begin to miss the mission of God. You don't have time. This, this, this is what I'm contending. That you don't have time. When you're consumed by that preference, you don't have time. You don't have energy. You don't have heart. You don't have mind. You don't have hands to give to the mission that God has indeed called you to. The rescuing work of other people. You see, these distractions whether that's the hiding of our sin or these pursuing of other lesser important things, this wrong ordering of priorities, then these become a means by which we rescue ourselves. Think of it like this you kind of have like blinders on, right? Think of like a horse in a parade, right? They have blinders on them often, maybe even every time, but certainly often. Why? So that they don't get distracted by these things over here. Well, our problem is our blinders get put on and they get focused in on the wrong thing. And we can't see what God's doing. And ultimately, we can't even see what God has called us to. You see, our calling is to be the offer of hope in the midst of the storm. And how can you and I be the offer of hope in the midst of the storm, when our hope is in the wrong thing. Our hope is in the preference. Our hope is in the hiding of that sin. Our hope is in crying out to this God or this God. We have nothing of value to offer the world when we're crying out to functionally the same gods that they do. We are to be the hope-filled people. like We have all people. and That's why I'm saying, If, if you understand your rescue... If you're a rescued person, then you will be a hopeful person. And if you're a hopeful person, you will be a rescuing person. But if you don't understand this rescuing work of God in your life, you will not be about the rescuing work of someone else. You will be about religion for other people. You will be about legalism for other people. You will be about whatever it is that you seek salvation in. You will present that to other people or you'll present the real gospel in word to other people, but your life will not be presenting it in deed. You see, we, t- we are to be a rescued people who rescue people. But again there, right, there's this tension. There's this tension. I don't know about you, but in my heart there's this tension because my rescuing directly, it's directly connected to my experience and reality of being rescued. And what happens is because I don't want to live for the rescue of other people, I want to live for my rescue. It causes this tension in my heart because I have been rescued. I should live for the rescue of other people. How do we we resolve that tension? First is this we need to own our sleeping. And really, secondly, we need to embrace our rescue. Own our sleeping and embrace our rescue. Going to verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us. That we may not perish. Now, again, if you go back to the story at this point, like, you, you, I mean, you to be careful how you read a narrative. Because if you, it's not going to be up on the screen, and this wasn't in my notes. But if you go to this passage in verse 6, it says So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleep, or so on and so forth? Say these things so we may not get perished, or we may not perish. Then he says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots. Notice what happens here. Like right, if if you just read through the story real quickly, the captain rebukes him. Then they cast lots, and then Jonah's talking about the fact that he's a Hebrew and that he's running from God. If you just read this straight through, here's what happens. At the beginning of this minute, he's being rebuked. Sixty seconds later. He's talking about being a Hebrew running from God. But what happens here? Again, it's a narrative. Time lapses. Now, we don't know how much time. We don't know how short a time. But here's the fact. Jonah's rebuked. And instead of confessing, they have to cast lots to expose Jonah. Does that make sense? So something happens. Like Here's what I want you to see. Jonah upon the captain's rebuke, has nothing to say. He has nothing to offer. Like here's the captain saying, cry out to your God. We need help. And Jonah has nothing to offer. Nothing. Just more hiding. More trying to rescue his own life. See the irony of the moment. Here's the irony of the moment. The one man on the ship who can actually cry out to the one God who can actually do something is the one below deck asleep. All the other people are crying out to their gods who can do nothing. I want you to let this soak in for a minute as I say it. Listen to the captain. How can you sleep? Get up. Call on your God. Let that weight settle in for just a moment. Listen, Jonah was surrounded by unbelievers who desperately needed to know the Lord. And Jonah had nothing. His ministry had been silenced by his secret sin. Do you hear that? The unbelievers around him desperately needed to know the Lord. And Jonah had nothing. He was so consumed with rescuing himself with his preferences in life that he had nothing to share with him. Nothing. He was asleep. Let me bring this home a little bit. You know, our Western Christianity, I'll kind of zero it in on that, has a history of being wide awake on the things most important to us. Same thing is very true today. We fight for the things that are most important to us. And I would argue, if you just observe, rarely for the ones most important to God. I want, you to th- I want you to think. Look at your own life. I'm sure that the people around you know how you feel about the latest political issue, social issue, your thoughts or Obama or Trump or the latest NFL trade. But do they know how you feel about the Lord in the midst of the storm? Do they know how you feel about the Lord in the midst of the storm? Again, we've got this, each one of us have the, I'm sure the, the things that are most important to us, people are clear around us, they know how we feel about these things. But do they know how we feel about the Lord You see, religion, even for us, guys, this is this temptation. But the culture at large, the culture at large is this way, and we have this temptation too. Religion has become just simply a form of self-expression. Christianity is just a form of self-expression. Let me define that. Whatever I deem valuable is what I want others to deem valuable. It's just an expression of me. Rather than an expression of God. And this is what our world is bought into. This is what many and even in our church, we struggle with buying into. I struggle with this as a leader. Like I, have to, I have to watch it that, that I don't try to sell and get you guys to buy into something that's just an expression of what I want. but it's an expression of what God wants. That's hard. It's a battle. You see, listen, if you are fighting for anything more than people to treasure Jesus, ultimately, then your heart's affections are terribly misplaced. Now listen, there's different avenues through which to do that. I I got that. Like there's you can use different issues and different brokenness and different situations to all lead back to the treasuring of Jesus. But my point is, is if that's not what's driving you, then your heart's affections are terribly misplaced. You are not doing God's business, at least not for Him. You're asleep to the real storm around you. The real storm around you is that these people need Jesus. That's the real storm. Listen, if God's heart is not your heart, if His greatest desires are not your greatest desires, if what's most important to God is not most important to you, then whatever is most important to you will be the trumpet you play. It will be the instrument you play. That will be the song of your life. Or as Casting Crowns said it, that will be your life song. And here's the deal. If that's the case, Satan will use even the good in that. He can use it for evil. So we need to own our sleeping. We need to repent for it. We need to take it to the cross and ask God for mercy. Listen, don't hide your sleeping. Don't hide your sleeping. Don't hide your seared conscience. If God is even remotely pricking your heart right now, don't don't squash it. Don't squash it. We need to be broken over the misplaced and misguided desires of our hearts. We need to ask God to rescue us from this. Understand the storms of those around us. Our coworkers, our children, our neighbors are crying out while we are often in the belly of the boat sleeping. I was so encouraged. I was talking this past week. I was in this big, huge exhibit hall, walking around going, I don't have anything to, like. I don't know who to talk to, I don't know. And so I found a couple people that I could talk to. Uh, one was a representative from Boyce College, which is the seminary where I graduated from, so I talked to this young lady. Had a great encouragement, great encouraging conversation. And I walked down the aisle and found the ACBC, uh, which is uh, Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, booth, and I talked to their representatives there for a few minutes and had a great conversation. But while I was there, two different times, a couple young ladies come up to the booth and ask for some candy, right, because all these booths give out candy, and uh, which it was just was just cool. And and uh while we were there, the gentleman, and I totally like was with him, completely stopped everything we were talking about, and engaged these young ladies and said, You ever have any um you ever have any friends that struggle with like discouragement or maybe anxiousness? And and they are like, Yeah, yeah. And he says, uh, you know, I've got this little bookmark here. It's got some verses. Uh, from the Bible that kind of deal with that and maybe you could go home and read it and maybe Lord willing he used that to encourage your friends and to care for them and and uh, and, and that was it and that was that was kind of the extent that that conversation was even going to allow for And but I was just I was thankful that in this moment like here we are we're just chatting about you know it's ministry it's good things but there was something more important maybe in that moment that he would Point them in a good direction, in the right direction. Listen, if you listen closely, you will hear the cry of those around you. I mean, because many of us go to, like, work, we go to school, we hear talk to our neighbors, and everything seems fine. Listen. Listen more closely. I mean, we can give examples. For any of them sports ball and their children, maybe that will save them, or maybe it's their possessions, or, or having a marriage that looks a certain way, or whatever. Maybe the marriage isn't satisfying enough for them anymore. I mean, you, if you listen closely, if you listen closely, you can hear it. You can. If, if you're clinging, listen, if you're clinging to the rescue of Jesus in your own life, this will cause you, like this This begins to allow you to let go of the trappings of life that have captivated your listening ears. Your looking eyes. You see what I'm saying? Like when, you, when you're so caught up in trying to rescue your own life, your eyes, your ears, that's where your attention is driven. But when you step back and rest in the rescuing work of Jesus, All of a sudden, man, I don't have to be so concerned about my life. I can listen to others. I can hear what's going on. I can see. I can ask questions. Imagine that. I can ask questions. You can. Because as you embrace being rescued by God, you will begin to have a heart like God's. A heart of compassion. See, have compassion on those around you, those around us who are crying out to other gods. This is the imperative for us. Listen, here, here, here's, here, let, me, let me be very blunt with you, like as if I'm not usually, but let me be blunt with you for a moment. Don't get mad at the lost people around you for making stupid decisions. Weep for them. You want to know if you're engaging someone with the right heart? If you want to know if you're engaging someone in maybe the right way? You want to know if your engagement of that person is for God or for you? Whether it's misordered or in the right order? Are you angry at them? Or are you weep for them? Listen, they don't have a worldview that can help them. Do you understand that? Like, they're in the storm. Your coworkers, your neighbors, your people on social media, they don't have the worldview that can help them. They don't. Now, I'm not saying justify their sin in your mind so that you can be more okay with them. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that they're slaves to their sin. They need rescued, not lectured. They need your compassion, not your self, unrighteous-driven anger. They need your brokenness and your help. Think about this with people in the church, right? So that was people outside of the, like outside of redemption, right? But don't also if you think about this, don't get mad at redeemed people around you for making stupid decisions. Weep for them. This was such a rebuke to my own heart this week. Oftentimes, the Christians around you simply don't have a biblically informed worldview as they could and maybe even as they should have. And unfortunately, sometimes they're too prideful to even hear otherwise. I feel your pain. Recently, I was struggling with why someone was doing something that just didn't make sense to me. I found myself getting angry. God helped me through this passage. This person simply doesn't have a biblically informed worldview that's big enough, strong enough for them to make the right decision. Now that doesn't minimize the grievousness of their sin. But it changes my heart from anger, unrighteous anger, slowly, To compassion. Again, these people need rescued, not lectured. Listen, hear me. The only reason, the only reason you have the worldview you have is because God rescued you with His glorious grace. We have no room to be arrogant, no room to be proud. No room to look down on people who don't understand what you understand because you didn't earn what you understand. What do we walk around as though we have it all figured out? When we do that, we don't ask questions. We don't pursue. We're not gentle. We're not compassionate. We have nothing to say when we do this. Why? Because you in that moment of proudness and Pride and arrogance, are, they're not clinging to the gospel. You're not clinging to God's rescue of you. You're clinging to your ability to rescue yourself. These people, they're in the middle of God's storm, and they don't have a stinking clue. Now, they think they do, but they don't have any idea. And the only reason you and I have any clue is because God has opened our eyes to His mysterious ways. He goes on in verse 7, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Listen to me. Jonah was only able to give them the life-saving message from God because he had been rescued by God. Right there. In those moments. God pulls Jonah out of his self-absorption. Listen, Jonah only had the worldview he had because God had rescued him. And God rescued him in this moment. Sure, he was already a child of God, but oh boy, was he rebelling. You see, Jonah needed the good news of rescue right here on the ship. And once he got it, He became an instrument of God's rescuing grace to those around him. You see, rescued people rescue people. Rescued people rescue people. People drowning or still live like they're drowning, like in a salvific sense, they can't rescue other people drowning dead people can't make dead people come to life. But someone, someone who has been rescued will want to see God rescue those around them. Those who are absorbed, who are self-absorbed, who are motivated by their own evil desires will be okay if they all just go to hell. But someone Who's been rescued will want to see the people around them rescued. Let me ask you this question. Even within our church community, are you a person of rescue? Are you a person of rescue? Do the people's souls feel cared for by your presence? Are you a person of rescue? And the first step to being a rescuer is to be rescued yourself. Let me remind you of something we talked about last week. The exposure of your sin is the beginning of hope. But not just for you. For those around you. Like, I bet you never thought of it this way. For us, we think that our lives being lived perfectly is the only way to give hope for the people around us. Well, i got to be this perfect person for those around me, both in the church and outside the church. Now, sure, now, listen, I want to caveat this, but not too far. Them seeing us, the world, and the others around us, seeing us different than the world is fantastic, and that's good. But how do you define like being different from the world? Now, sure, it involves not living in the same immorality they do, but it also means dealing with your sin in a different way. And I would contend that that is the primary way that we are to look different than the world, and that is the way we deal with our failures the way we deal with our sin, the way we recognize and confess our brokenness, and then the way we take that brokenness to the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, the world, the way they deal with it, and the way you and I are tempted, and even often sometimes deal with it ourselves, is we deal with our brokenness, our sinfulness, by either doing more good things, or by self-justification, convincing ourselves that what we did was not indeed wrong. But instead, the primary way in which we show that we are different is by the way we deal with our sin by repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Here's the deal, though. When your sin is exposed by God and you run to Him, what's happening? What's happening? When you are being rescued, Listen, your heart is clinging to the gospel. Like it's clinging. It's saying, My only hope is here. Your heart is hopeful, right? Your heart is hopeful. In order for you to run to God means you have to have hope that God can actually save you, right? That He that you can run that direction. It's based on the fact that you have hope. What else is happening? You're humbled. Right, Your, your arrogance is, is dissipating. And what else? You're rescued. You're rescued. And what do rescued people do? They rescue people. You want to know how to engage your heart in such a way that it will begin to engage others with the gospel. You want to know how to be a part of God's rescue plan? You need to know. You need to hear. You need to feel the rescuing work of God of your life. You need to hear from the Scriptures how He rescued you. We talked about this passage last week. God demonstrated his love for us. Why? And that while we we're still sinners, how? Christ died for us. You need to know in your mind these truths and see evidence of God's rescuing work in your life. Yes, I would even say this you need to feel it, it needs to grip your heart. To know that you are loved and rescued by God. And you need this every day. Every day. I don't know why you come to church. But I come to church to be reminded of God's glory and its display in the saving of sinners. Particularly this one. Once Jonah's sin was exposed, once God's rescue plan was perceived by Jonah, understood by Jonah, seen by, felt by Jonah, as we'll see in chapter 2, he stopped being the silent one in the ship, and he became the rescuer in the ship. Listen, not even the rescuer who had the, like the, the words to say. He became the one who offered his life He offered to lose his life for the sake of these men. You see, in order to live for the rescue of others, you need to forsake living for your own rescue and start living because of God's rescue of your life. You see, we have a Savior. Listen to this, right? We have a Savior. Think about the gospel with me. Who gave up his life for the sake of our rescue. And then what happened three days later? God raised his life, right? You and I we give up our lives for the sake of the gospel. And what does he promise to do? What's he promised to do? Raise us up and seat us with Jesus in the heavenlies. Do you see that? Why do we why would we live for ourselves? Oh, well, we could live for that. The thing I would leave you with is this. Don't live for your rescue. Live because of God's rescue in your life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we sing, as we reflect, as we think about these things, Father, I pray that you would turn our hearts to to see the beauty of the rescuing work of your Son, Jesus, to bring us out of the depths of our brokenness, our sinfulness, our depravity, and to bring us to a place where our temple has been cleaned and fit for the inhabiting of a king. Father, let us behold your glory displayed through your son Jesus in the rescuing work of our hearts and our souls so that we might be used by you for the rescue of other people, for your glory and our good. Amen.